So, Manuel, we think one of the big theses of your work is that the key to economic growth are future prosperity, sustainability, smart growth, and to some degree even the future of our democracy is to focus on greater social and economic inclusion and to dramatically decrease the inequality and lack of economic opportunity that exists across racial and class lines. Is this an accurate statement, and what brings you to this conclusion? Well, what brings me to this conclusion like many other conclusions I take get, is uh, data. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Hi there, and welcome to this week's episode of Infinite Earth Radio, where each week we interview thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. Bernice, I think today's episode is a great follow-on to our last show and our conversation with Kate Neese from the Local Government Commission and Matthew Dalby, the Director of the Office of Sustainable Communities at EPA. When Matthew was asked about the future of smart growth and sustainability, he talked about the fundamental changes in our economy since the Great Recession and the need for every community to be thinking about and incorporating economic development into the planning process. Our guest today is not only a good friend of yours, but he is also one of the leading thinkers about the connection between collaboration, inclusion, equity, and economic growth. Would you like to do the honors and introduce our guest? Well, yes, I would. Today's guest is Manuel Pastor, who is professor of sociology and American studies and ethnicity at the University of Southern California, where he also serves as the director of USC's Program for Environmental and Regional Equity, or PEER, and co-director of USC's Center for the Study on Immigration Integration. He is the author of multiple books, including most recently, Equity, Growth, and Community, What the Nation Can Learn from America's Metro Areas, which he co-authored with Chris Berner from UC Santa Cruz. Welcome to our podcast today. Glad to be with you. Manuel, can you share briefly with our audience a little bit about your background and what motivates you to work so hard on issues of economic and social equity and inclusion? Well, it's probably a couple of things, but I think one of the First is that, you know, I'm a working class kid, or at least I grew up in a working class family with a father who was undocumented when he arrived to the country, who was, I thought, the smartest guy I ever met, but had a lot of problems getting ahead for a number of different reasons, and it kind of tuned me into the issues of injustice. Second, I grew up in the 1960s, and of course it was a vibrant time for change and for organizing, and Finally, since about the late 1980s, early 1990s, after I began my work as an academic, I began working with organizers and realized that social change doesn't take place just from good ideas. An idea is important, but it requires community organizing. It requires mobilization. It requires social movements for good ideas to translate into policy. And since then, I've been joined at the hip with activists. 
So one of the first things you talk about in your latest book, Manuel, is how incredibly spatially, politically, and intellectually segregated America is becoming. Can you explain to our audience how this is happening and why it's such a big problem? Well, the dimensions of it are pretty incredible. First, we're seeing increasing uh, separation by income. That is the share of the affluent who live in affluent neighborhoods, the share of the poor who live in poor neighborhoods. Both ends of that spectrum have increased in the last 40 years. So people are more likely to be in almost social silos with affluent people thinking that they're incredibly talented, and that's the reason they're there, and with poor people facing quite limited opportunities. We've also separated politically. In 1992, about a, less than a quarter of America's counties were counties where, in the 1992 presidential election, there was a landslide victory, meaning that one party triumphed over another party by more than 20 percentage points. By the last election, it was well over 50% of counties. So that's also kind of political isolation. And it's been exacerbated by media as well. Instead of broadcasting, we've got narrow casting, where people wind up listening to news sources that essentially confirm their biases. I mean, we really see this now in the current presidential race with the way in which Donald Trump has captured the imagination of a large part of U.S. society, despite offering a sort of relatively fact-free narrative. And that's because people are trying to confirm their biases rather than figure out how the world actually works. And that degree of spatial and social separation means it's very hard to come to agreement on what to do about our big problems. Manuel, uh, uh, Bernice can attest to the fact that I, I read a fair number of books, and I, I have to say that your book is one of the best books I've read. In particular, the first chapter, I, I think, is something that uh, everybody in America could read and, and learn and understand a lot more about where we are politically. In your book, you talk about the three big crises in the U.S., the jobs crisis, the inequality crisis, and the political crisis, and how, while often these are viewed as separate crises, they are, in fact, inextricably intertwined. And I realize this is a huge topic, and we have a very short amount of time. But can you break down into simple terms for our audience what the three crises are and how they work together in a way that is detrimental to our future? So we've had a recovery from the great recession that has posted less job growth than almost any recovery since the Great Depression. And what, you know, that's masked a bit by the fact that the unemployment rate has gone down in the United States to about 5%, but that's because so many people have dropped out of the labor market. So we've had a slow recovery in terms of jobs. We were already having uh, slow job growth prior to that during the Bush administration, and definitely very anemic growth in terms of high-quality jobs, jobs that play middle-class wages. We've also had a huge inequality crisis. The share of income going to the top 1% is now as high as it was at the eve of the Great Depression. Uh, and aside from the sort of capture of income by the top 1%, there's also been a widening divide between those who are at the 80 and 90th percentile of the income distribution, sort of professional middle-class folks. And working poor, people are at the 10, 25 percentile of the income distribution with the middle disappearing. Those two things feed into each other because when you've got lots of inequality, it has a bad impact on economic growth and on jobs. When you've got slow job growth, 
hard for people to make progress at the bottom end of the labor market. And that inequality is also fed into a political crisis. And that political crisis is our inability, particularly at a national level, to come up with solutions to the problems that we face. One of the reasons why this book tries to take a look at what's going on at the metropolitan level is because while at a national level, we're not seeing much attention being paid, except for example, in the Sanders campaign, to the issue of inequality, you've got all of these cities and metro areas trying to raise the minimum wage and successfully doing so. While you've got the nation paralyzed around what to do about comprehensive immigration reform, you've got a wave of cities creating welcoming offices uh, for immigrants, creating municipal IDs in places like California, providing driver's licenses. While the nation is paralyzed, not only on what to do about climate change, but whether or not it's real, you've got cities and states like, once again, California, leading the way on how to address climate change. And so with all of this paralysis at a national level, one of our big points is that we start needing to look at what's happening at a metropolitan level, figure out why that works, and try to figure out how to bubble it up to deal with these big three intertwined crises. So, Manuel, in your most recent book, Equity, Growth, and Community, What the Nation Can Learn from America's Metro Areas, the solution you articulate to this economic and political quagmire is the formation of what you call diverse, dynamic, epistemic communities. Can you explain this concept to our audience? So first, I should say I realize that that term is something only an academic could love. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> certainly quite quite complex, and it sounds sophisticated, and it's designed for people who get academic promotions at their universities, etc. But it's actually a lot simpler. Epistemic is what you know. Community is who you know it with. And one of the things going on in the United States is that there's this gap in what we know and agree on. One of the things we lift up in the book is that during the 2008 uh, presidential campaign, roughly 16% of Republican voters believed that President Barack Obama was born in a different country and probably was a Muslim. By 2012, when more information had come out four more years, in which the birth certificate from Hawaii had been produced, 30% of Republicans believed that President Obama had been born in a different country. So we are in a place where people don't agree on the basic facts. And epistemic communities are about creating opportunities for people to know together so that they can grow together. And the thing that we sort of left up in this book is that it's important for them to be diverse and dynamic. That is, you can't be surrounded simply by like-minded or like-raced people. You need to make sure that who's at the table is coming from different sectors, different communities, etc., to be able to understand what it is that weaves us together and where our mutual interests might lie. The dynamic is that these things can't become too settled. I mean, you know, if a, you had a knowledge community that's kind of frozen in time, it doesn't let in new people. So dynamic means sort of the ability to change over time and the ability to deal with shocks. One of the things that we really point out in the book is that these epistemic communities, these knowledge communities, these efforts of kind of understanding how your metropolitan region works and bringing people onto the same page at the same time, they're often sort of triggered into action by an economic shock, by an environmental shock, or even by a demographic shock, so that people are trying to grapple with the new realities.
Can you share with us a, an example of you know, from your book a place where these diverse epistemic communities have come together and, and how this has benefited the community or the region? Well, one of the examples that we left up in the book, and any examples can have issues with it, is uh, Seattle. Uh, because Seattle actually has something known as the Seattle process. Sometimes the joke in Seattle is bringing together people from all different sectors so they can talk an idea to death. Uh, but what it does mean is that they've got a kind of sort of articulated cultural practice, really, of bringing together multiple sectors to be able to deal with issues. So, for example, when they raised their minimum wage, they put together a commission of, it was 24 or 25 people, and they talked about what would happen with the minimum wage. And by the end of the process, all but two members of this special commission that had been put together agreed on the increase to minimum wage, the level, the phasing, et cetera. And the two people who didn't agree, one was a Trotskyite who was likely to push for something a little bit stronger. The other was the head of the chamber who said that she was actually in support, but she couldn't get all of her members to agree in a tight enough period of time. So they essentially tried to come to an agreement through the Seattle process, but they've used it before. They've used it around affordable housing. They've used it around issues like where to place a homeless shelter. They've used it around day labor sites. The simple idea of bringing people together to get them to talk ideas through. Now, they've also developed in Seattle a certain set of equity indicators projects, which allow them to really gauge what's going on in terms of equity in their region. There are problems in Seattle, particularly now with such a hot economy and the gentrification that's taking place. But it really holds up an example of how you can sort of bring people together. Interestingly, it's happened in other places, too. In Salt Lake City, a place most people would look for progressive ideas, they have something called Envision Utah, which brought together all sectors of different communities to think about what the future of the valley in which Salt Lake sets would be in order to deal with too much economic pressure, in order to deal with too much environmental pressure. And they've actually created a situation where that sort of common set of understandings has even filtered over to things like immigration. So it's not well known, but Utah is the place, the Salt Lake is the kind of heart of the Utah Compact, which was an agreement among civic leaders, business leaders, religious leaders, and immigrant rights activists to have a more civil conversation about immigration. Utah is a state that had driver's licenses for undocumented residents before California and had in-state tuition for DREAMers only one year after California. So these kinds of ways of bringing people together can really make a difference. I don't want to be too Pollyannish about this. One of the things that we explore in the book is places where there's a lot of conflict and people can't come together, but also, interestingly, places where conflict eventually led to collaboration. One good example of that is San Antonio, Texas, where community, uh, if you'd been in San Antonio 40 years ago, it was a place sort of riven by racial conflict, particularly from Latinos and African-Americans who felt and were dramatically underrepresented in the political decision-making in the city, in which uh, the West Side neighborhoods, mostly Latino, would literally be washed out when the rains came because there was a lack of infrastructure spending. And an Industrial Areas Foundation community organizing group got together, pressed for district elections to lift up Latino and African-American representation, fought hard against the Chamber of Commerce to get it to stop marketing San Antonio as a low-wage paradise. And out of all of that conflict, however, came 
a lot of intimacy between the people who were fighting. They got to know one another. They went up agreeing on things like workforce development. And just two years ago, San Antonio voters voted for a sales tax on themselves to fund pre-K education for disadvantaged kids. It's amazing when you think about voters. Usually they would vote something only that would only benefit them, and most voters aren't disadvantaged. But even more amazing, that uh, tax to fund pre-K was supported, of course, by community organizing groups and social justice groups and a progressive mayor. But it was also supported by the San Antonio Chamber of Commerce, which saw investment in pre-K for less advantaged kids as part of workforce development that was needed for the next 20 years. So conflict, you know, talking about collaboration, talking about creating these communities, doesn't mean an absence of conflict. Organizers need to fight hard for equity to make sure that it's part of the conversation, but they also need to move from a war of attrition to principled conflict that can lead to collaboration. So, Manuel, we think one of the big theses of your work is that the key to economic growth are future prosperity, sustainability, smart growth, and to some degree even the future of our democracy is to focus on greater social and economic inclusion and to dramatically decrease the inequality and lack of economic opportunity that exists across racial and class lines. Is this an accurate statement, and what brings you to this conclusion? Well, what brings me to this conclusion like many other conclusions I take get, is uh, data. Um, so one of the things is I've long sort of thought that the traditional economic argument that inequality was essential for growth didn't make a lot of sense. Because if you ever work someplace where people treat each other really unequally, not a very productive workplace. When you move into a community where people are at odds with one another all the time, it's not harmonious, doesn't produce economic prosperity. So I could never figure out why economic theory said it was the case. It does, of course, because it says that when there's a lot of inequality, there's more incentives. When there's a lot of inequality, there's more savings. And that will lead to investment and growth. Well, that's true if you move to the Soviet Union, in which you suppress all income inequality. But, you know, the reverse of that, which is you can have too much income inequality, where there's a lot of conflict, where there's not enough uh, money in the hands of middle-class people to sustain an economy where there's not enough investment in public education. So we've been doing a lot of work trying to look at the relationship between inequality and economic growth. And one of the things we do in the book is we essentially look at sustained economic growth in 190 metropolitan regions of the United States over the last 30 years. And we found out that the single largest predictor of whether or not you would not be able to sustain economic growth is the level of income inequality. Also important, residential segregation, and something called metropolitan fragmentation, when you've got too many governments, basically, per person, when you've got cities that can't coordinate in the way that smart growth asks for people to coordinate. So these issues of inequality, residential segregation, metropolitan fragmentation, they're not only bad for poor people, they're actually bad for regional economic prosperity. And it's not just us making this argument. The Cleveland Federal Reserve did a study of 150 metropolitan regions, much the size of Cleveland, came up with very similar results. Just two years ago, the International Monetary Fund did a study looking at sustained economic growth at a country level, same set of conclusions. There's a shift happening in economic thinking to realize that income inequality is corrosive, not only to our politics, 
not only to our society, but also to our economic prosperity. And progressives need to be making this argument more strongly, more forcefully, and making equity and inclusion central to what we do about repairing our economy. Relating to that data, the USC's Program for Environmental and Regional Equity, an organization that you're the executive director of, in collaboration with PolicyLink, recently released the National Equity Atlas, which is a great tool for government officials, planners, policymakers, and citizens who want to better understand the data and dynamics of equity at the metropolitan and regional levels. Can you share with the audience what the tool does and your goal in creating it? First, uh, anyone can play with the tool at the nationalequityatlas.org is the website. And what it allows you to do is to look at uh, pretty disaggregated data on economic and social and environmental fortunes by race, nativity, gender, etc. for all 50 states plus D.C., for the top 150 metropolitan areas, and for the most populous 100 cities in the United States. It's basically a nerd fest. Uh, We consider ourselves to be nerds for social justice. And we did this for a couple of different reasons. It essentially was born when Angela Clever Blackwell and I, she's the head of Policy Link, were at a meeting at the White House. And we realized that while we had pretty good ideas about what to do, few people were paying attention because we didn't have the kind of data that we needed behind the ideas. And so this created a way to sort of democratize data and also for the people who are listening to this podcast who are organizers in a metropolitan area or a state or a big city. If your public officials tell you that they can't disaggregate data to figure out how immigrant uh, Latinos or uh, Asian females or African-Americans with a high school education are doing in your area, There's no excuse any longer. You could just go to the nationalequityatlas.org and get the data. The best thing about the website is it's actually wrapped up in a story. It's not just serving numbers. Every one of those numbers is connected to a story about why investing in improving equity is actually good for economic growth. There's a description for each data point about why it matters. There's a set of ideas about how you can move the needle on that data point in order to create more equity and opportunity. And there's a bunch of examples on each page about policy ideas that you could pursue. And usually an example of someone in another part of the country who's come up with a very cool idea about how to help folks coming out of the criminal justice system uh, re-enter into the labor market or how to take opportunities, people who are disconnected from the labor market in school and get them back in. So it's not just data, it's a set of tools you can use to organize and also to pressure your local officials about the inequalities that exist in your metropolitan or municipal area. It's an amazing and fantastic tool. I've I've played around with it a little bit. I I highly recommend it to folks. It's absolutely beautiful, too. If you actually play with it, you'll, you'll, as you said, enjoy getting data, and it's fun. Which is a good thing to help drive a deeper understanding of of what's really happening in our country. So we have three quick questions that we call a lightning round, Manuel, that we'd like to ask you. And if you could give us a quick, brief answer off the top of your head. First one is, if you could implement one change or pick one leverage point that would lead to smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities, what would it be? It would be making sure that people understand that there isn't one leverage point that we need to move the needle on multiple things at the same time. 
that we need to make sure that people are re-entering from the criminal justice system successfully, that we're dealing with immigration reform, we're dealing with gender inequality, that we need to get away from the idea that there's a silver bullet for our problems. What one action could our listeners take to help build a more equitable and sustainable future? Three actions. Organize, organize, organize. Here, here. So, Manuel, if you're successful in the work that you are doing, what does the world look like 30 years from now? Well, I hope there'll be more equity. I hope there'll be more opportunity. And I hope that we'll find another thing that we'll be struggling for justice about. You know, we are in a search for improving the world. And I never thought uh, 30 years ago that one of the issues I would have picked up in the last five years would have been marriage equality. Didn't think about it. I know that 30 years from now, there's going to be another issue I never thought about. And I'll be happy to lift up that banner. Fantastic. Manuel, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we've run out of time for this week, but we will look forward, Manuel, to having you back as a guest on a future show. And we want to thank all of you for listening today, and we look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infinite earth radio and Twitter by following at infinite earth radio. 